When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, dude? What's up, buddy? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Excited for today's show. We have Dr. Juron. He's your friend, huh? He, good friend of mine. You know what's funny is I was thinking about it. He was the very first celeb we ever had on our podcast. And it was it was quick. He was in and out within like five minutes because when we started up this podcast, we were in studios that were right next door to where he was doing his radio show. So I remember one day during either commercial break or after show, he popped in and he was like officially the first celeb. So now, now we've invited him back to do a full segment with him. And I'm really excited. I, did I ever tell you how I met Dr. Drew? I was about to ask, how did you guys become close? So, what was, what's your relationship? So back in my TMZ days, I remember I was on Facebook one day. And Stryker, who was his co-host on Loveline at the time, uh, Stryker had posted some photos. And it was him and Dr. Drew like flexing. And I was like... Holy shit, Dr. Drew is jacked. Like ripped. Ripped. Yeah. Like you you just didn't expect it, all right? And I thought that that photo was so interesting and my job was obviously pitching out photos, so I reached out to Striker, got permission to use the photo, I put it up on the show, and then I don't know, like maybe a month later they invited me to come in for Loveline. I got to be a guest on Loveline and we talked about it. And then Drew and I and obviously Striker as well, we hit it off. Drew was the first person to introduce me to Twitter. He like literally signed me up for a Twitter account on his computer. So I think that was hilarious back in the day. <laughs> uh, but we've always kept in contact with any big like celebrity death story. I mean, I was literally texting with Drew when Michael Jackson died. I think I was tweeting with him when Prince died. I mean, it's just we've we've had a friendship for many, many years now. So I'm excited to have him on. Yeah, it's actually every time I've, I've met him, it's he, he's a very, very intelligent guy. He's one of those guys when he talked to me, you could realize how smart he is. Yep. But then he's so on top of stuff. Obviously, with social media and with the internet and even TV, I mean, he essentially came on TV for me. I guess Loveline was the first time I was exposed to him. And he was like this modern day Dr. Drew. Like for me as a young modern kid, it was crazy Drew. to hear the word, you know, it was it was crazy to see these dirty words kind of sit. It was sort of, to hear those words he was saying on TV was kind of wild, yep. but he was just. He was great. It was fun. It was funny. And he, he just came on at a great time. He's a super cool dude. Before we get to him, um, you know, we always like to say, please review, leave a review because with, with iTunes in the algorithm, uh, the best thing you do to support this podcast is give us five stars and leave a good review. And sub, obviously. And when you do the review, and- yeah, and when you give us a review, <laughs> we uh, – we will read that review on the air. So, Dax, do you have a review you I got could a review. Uh, share with us? All right, it's right here. It is from DanaBoo101, the best. It says, I absolutely love this podcast. Dax and Adam are an amazing team, and you can tell how much fun they're having together. I'm often laughing out loud as I listen to their banter. Keep up the good work, boys. You're crushing it. I'm totally hooked. I get it so excited when a new episode comes out. This podcast is my new obsession. Well, that, that was very nice. Is a fantastic review. <laughs> that is an amazing review. That's an example that one of what we need you to need post to do, our, people. Uh, our Instagram page or something because that was a good one. 
Yeah, that's a great review. I mean, give us more of those guys, and that's the best thing to do to support this podcast. Um, and it's really, it's super easy. It's super easy. But uh, uh, again, I'm excited for today's show. Dax, tell us about today's guest. All right. Today, our guest is one of my good friends, a very, very smart man, a doctor, producer, host of like a thousand shows, including Loveline, Celeb Rehab, Sex Rehab, and many, many more. Dr. Drew, welcome to the ho. Welcome to the ho. Welcome to the podcast. I was going to say, <laughs> I don't even know what I was going to say. Welcome, Dr. Drew. Obviously, you're a doctor. I have a rash. Do you mind checking this out? Straight away. We're going right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking. I, I mean, here's, here's the thing about, uh, but it, it brings up a really important sort of topic, which is that if you show me a picture of the rash, I could I could come up with some ideas about what it might be, right? <laughs> yeah, the so. same is true of people's behavior. You can look at people's behavior on a screen and go, oh, that could be a number of things you can sort of fill. <laughs> and so people are always like, you can't possibly say anything unless you've examined people. No, no. On, on, the, on the extremes, you can tell for sure. Uh, not for sure, but you can tell at least sort of the, the, the spectrum of what might be going on. How often do people come up to you on the street and they literally do like show you their arm or show you a rash or pull out a picture? Like how often does it happen? Uh, it happens. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's usually, you know, it literally they're not going to show me in public kind of thing. Just like Adam. Just like Adam. Just like Adam. awkward one? Mm, I remember in the sort of Loveline MTV days, I, I remember people used to stop me in these really sort of inappropriate environments and I like people and I want to help. And so I would get engaged in these conversations and, and I, I, it was very uncomfortable and unsatisfying. And I remember one day I was going into like a convenience store from a gas station. This dude jumped out of his uh, convertible and like backed me into the candy section with a, a whole litany of questions about essentially, you know, is his sexual functioning normal? And I thought, oh, this is, there's a reason that you walk into an office and you open a door, you have a beginning, a middle and an end to the, the relationship and you walk out and close the door because in these out in the wild, there's no, there's no structure. It just goes on and on and on. And, and oh, I just thought of this. And what about that? And it's very, and, and there's no follow through. And it's, you know, I have very limited information for it either. I, that I don't care. That I don't care about. But but the the lack of satisfaction in, in what the interaction is, what used to always bug me. And I think that there's no structure to it. So it's interesting. Um, I would say when you go on a plane, people love when you're on a plane with because they just feel safe. You know, they feel like, you know, Dr. Drew is here. If anything happens, there's a doctor on board. You know, if someone like you, Dr. Roz, is on a plane, everyone's just going to feel just in a better mood when they see you. I like uh, that. If, if that's true, I like that. However, it's uh, – I'm sorry, it's a little false. <laughs> Although I have had to run to stuff at a plane before, more than a couple of times, I think, if I remember right. One recently, one recently, there's a guy behind me, and he was, uh, I, could, I could tell he was talking about a case, and I knew he was a physician. So, you know, the call comes over the overhead thing, and he and I got up and ran over there, and this woman was, she, she was having, she was unconscious, uh, and she had some vital sign issues, and he and I started working on her. And she woke up and she looked at me and she made me take a selfie with her. <laughs> She's like, I'm good. I just need a selfie. That break. was weird. That was weird. It's funny because you can't like you have to be the first one to jump up. If it comes on mm -hmm. the 
the overhead is there a doctor on board there's no like hey i need to finish watching my movie or my drink no like, no 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 everyone's going to be the first person to look at is you no no you got to get up i mean you got to help <laughs> out but 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 that but the comedy is adam used to always say when people go drew what kind of doctor are you and adam will go hey he's the kind of guy when it, when the call comes over the loudspeaker is there a doctor in the house he has to get up and go attend to the person. <laughs> so you what, can't take that one off. What kind of what kind of doctor are you? Like officially, like, what Jesus, is your Dax, medical? How long have we known each other? I know, right, but so, not oh everyone else knows. So I'm going to ask the questions right, so, so that the listeners know. Okay, so here's my pedigree. So I went to Amherst College back east. I went to a U.S. University of Southern California Keck School of Medicine. Then I did an internal medicine residency. Then I did something called a chief residency where I taught for a year, and then I taught general medicine for three years after that. I was prob I was sort of headed towards cardiology. Uh, were it not for the fact that I was moonlighting at a psychiatric hospital and I got very interested in the medical management of psychiatric patients. I ended up becoming the chief of the medical service at that psychiatric hospital. All the uh, medical problems were down on the drug unit, at least a lot of them were, and I enjoyed working down there. So I got very good at drug withdrawal and got interested in drug addiction. Then I saw people recover, and that was so extraordinary to me. I thought, I'm, I want to know more about this. So I started getting more involved with it was asked to be the assistant director of the program. I started working towards getting my board certification in addiction medicine, and then uh, the director quit, and that moved me into the directorship position, so I really had to get my act together in terms of my understanding of treating uh, drug and alcohol addictions, and um, have been board certified a couple times uh, on that, on the addiction medicine side, uh, and then I'm a fellow at the American College of Physicians. I taught not just through general medicine. I taught through the Department of Psychiatry for a long time, like 10 years. And then I also taught through the Department of Adolescent Medicine um, years ago for a couple of years doing lecturing and that kind of thing. And then I lectured to first and second year medical students for a long time. So I did a lot of teaching and I had a lot of different sort of assistant clinical professor type positions. So do you have one of those physician time. license plates? No, we don't have that in California. No? Mm-mm. Man, it sucks. New York, you guys get all the great parking spots. I know we don't have that in California. We we get nothing in California. We get we get uh, hassled. That's what we get. All all the liability, none. Yeah, just liability. That's what we get. So, what makes a good TV doctor? I feel like you were, you know, one of the pioneers to really do it. Uh, and not, you know, you weren't the first, but you know, you were hosting a show and you know, and and doing a great job with it. But how did you make that transition into really hosting TV as a doctor? Uh, to, uh, one accident after another. I, I mean, just like addiction medicine was sort of an exploration and an improvisation for me, radio was just something that came along in 1983. And at the time, uh, I was, for the next, that year and for the next five years after that, I was working on AIDS patients constantly. And we had one Anthony Fauci at the time telling us young physicians that we needed to go out and educate and public health message. And we developed all these strategies for changing behavior, you got very good at it. All of that was abandoned during coronavirus, strangely. All of it. Very weird. But in any event, that motivated me to kind of go in there and educate. And I was stunned that the first time I showed up on the radio, which I thought was going to be a one-off, that A, all the really important material was coming in the middle of the night to a radio station. And nobody seemed to know anything about – we don't didn't have the term HIV yet. We, still, we were calling it – HTLV and then HTLV3 and we had just stopped calling it grids and now we were starting to call it AIDS and uh, no one seemed to know anything. I was stunned and I thought, well, I got to keep coming back and doing this. 
So I did it for the next 10 years for free, thought I was doing community service. Uh, and then they kind of rolled it out five nights a week. That was the essentially the week that my wife got pregnant with triplets, at which point she said, no more community service. You have to get paid if you're out of here five nights a week. So I asked for a job in radio. And then some television producers came along and said, we want to turn this into a TV show. And I was like, how does that work? I don't know what that is. And by the way, if you can, do, if I'm going to do it, all I've got is Friday afternoon and Saturday afternoon. I can give you that and otherwise leave me alone to practice medicine. And so that's kind of how it happened. Everything else has been, you know, I sort of was a, uh, you know, a resistant media person. I, I, I thought it was important to do some of these things, but I wanted to be left alone to practice medicine. And, you know, Loveline came around on MTV and then that kind of went away and I kept doing radio and uh, somebody showed up and wanted to do, you know, uh, a TV show about what we were doing on the drug unit. It's called Celebrity Rehab. And I thought, well, that's interesting. No way you can do that, but you know, we'll just look into it. Let's see if there's some something we can figure out here. And that's what we did. Why, why do you think Loveline like hit a chord like it did? Because that show was crazy successful. And not only that, like I went on. I mean, I went on Loveline, I don't know, three or four times. And every time I went on, it was like the insane amount of texts and calls from people because they love that show. Yeah. Loved it. They loved it. it. It was like a clubhouse. It was just a place that people gathered at night to share ideas and thoughts and, and some humor uh, that you just couldn't get anywhere else at the time. I mean, you got to kind of put the historical context in place because radio had such power back then. Radio was the equivalent of, you know, think of some internet, Reddit or something. You know, it's some, something where young people went for their information and their cultural sort of uh, identity, which was radio. And as such, when you gave them a chance to come in and participate and talk and give good information and talk about things that were intense and then have some funny on top, that, that was a pretty powerful combination. Yeah, Absolutely. but as a doctor on TV, obviously a lot of your colleagues, you know, a lot of other doctors are watching the show. Did you ever feel – I feel like for them you were just an easy target, maybe some sort of jealousy because, sure. like, oh, here's this guy who's on TV. We're going to come out. You know, like we disagree with his his analysis. Well, here's the thing you got to understand. There's, there's a couple layers to that. One is with physicians, everybody's an expert. Everybody. So everybody feels like that I should be the one that's up there talking. And, and they're right. They, they, are, they are as knowledgeable as I am. But what they don't understand is the skill set and what's required to go out there and do this. Uh, so there's sort of, sort of an unreality in terms of I could let me do that. In fact, that exact thing happened to me early on when Loveline started getting some traction. There were some newspaper articles. I was a resident at the time. I was actually an intern, sort of finishing my internship. And my residency director went apeshit. He went nuts on me. Uh, there's something wrong with you. What, what are you doing? This, this is ridiculous. And, and then also they couldn't understand what this was because they were old. And, and as a result of that experience of my judgment as a 25-year-old being questioned, I now, I, I, I don't question young people's judgment. I assume they know something I don't know. They have a sensibility that I don't know from the perspective that they, they have. And um, and I had to stop doing it for a while. He threatened to fire me from my residency position. This is the same guy that then put me in the chief position three years later. Two years later, he came up to me in the hall and went, are you still doing that radio thing? I'll tell you what, I'll take over now. Let me do it. I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> asshole. No problem. No problem. 
so it, it, this is a weird now now that's one layer there's another layer which is when you're out there doing stuff uh it's pretty easy to be critical and just to take pot shots like i the the, the guy i identify with most strongly is dr oz in that you you got to understand to become a cardiovascular you know a th- cardiothoracic surgeon that is particularly at the time he trained top of the heap only the brightest and best and then he became the director the chief of service for cardiothoracic surgery at Columbia Hospital Columbia University Hospital this is like there's nobody at a higher level than that and so you know he's a super bright guy you know he's super capable and yet still people take pot shots at him. And that, that to me is like, that, I mean, he, he proved himself. You, you should show him a little deference for that. Yeah, besides being a really good guy. And, and he is a good guy. And, and by the way, you know, when you're doing TV, you're out there, you are at the be- you are doing the work of the producers. You're not doing your work. This is all a huge infrastructure that you're trying to kind of control and make good and make sure it doesn't say anything wrong and stay on top of it. And if you blink, you find yourself saying something you don't, you think, oh, was that the, should I really have said that? Because it's it's coming at you constantly from the production team. Yeah. It's hard. It is hard. And so that's what he gets criticism for. And that's that's not fair. Have you ever, during your experience from all the years doing TV, radio, podcasts, had producers say, hey, maybe you should say this or say that just to... Oh. Constantly, content, but yet constantly. Oh, hey, listen. Let's go to celebrity rehab. Celebrity rehab. I I didn't know how reality shows were produced. I don't know how that works. I know that if you turn cameras on when somebody when you're in a drug treatment program, there's tons of drama. Always, always, always. That's the way a drug treatment center is. People are sick, and there is all kinds of stuff that goes on. And so uh, I knew there would be a lot, but what I didn't know was that the producers, like the first week, I found producers in the patient rooms going, hey, Jessica, do you hear what Mary said about you? She said, you're a bitch. What do you think about that? You know, have you seen the series Unreal, the TV show Unreal? Yeah. Go yeah. for Rachel. Yeah, I had a bunch of Rachels working on my patient. <laughs> and, 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 and I went, I went, oh my God, you, what are you doing? These are, these are patients who are ill. What the, what is going on? And I had so, I threw so many fits <laughs> that in upcoming seasons, it got to the point where I said, okay, I'll do a season. Here's the deal. No producer gets near a patient under any circumstances unless I'm in the room, number one. Number two, no one is allowed to make eye contact with me from the production team unless they're going to ask one of four questions. Doctor, how's the patient going? Doctor, what's the discharge date? Doctor, how much is this going to cost? Doctor, what's the family therapy going to be? You ask me those four questions, we'll talk. Otherwise, you make eye contact. I'm taking these patients down the street to the hospital. I'm getting the hell out of here. And I was I was dead serious about it. It, it. it took that to really get things under control. Of course, they didn't trust that things would happen. And I know they were just doing their job. But this was this is not that kind of an environment at all. And so that was really interesting. That was kind of an education for me. I, th- I think the whole celeb rehab show, I mean, it's it's fascinating. I, did you have a hard time getting like celebs to sign up for this show? Because this is exposing everything. Like a yeah. lot of people's darkest fears or yeah. things they want to keep out of the public, you're exposing. And I'm right. not saying you, but the TV show is exposing this to the world. And I got to think that's a very scary, vulnerable situation. So, for so did you see the, I guess E did a series this week that aired about reality shows. 
and uh, Ilanya or somebody or somebody that's a TV therapist who's not a physician was taking aim saying, oh, this is too delicate to do on TV. Why? Why can we show an ER, an appendicitis, a gunshot wound, any other medical problem, but you can't show brain problems on TV? Really? That's 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 stigmatizing. And it's 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 uh, creating a continued bias against brain disorders as somehow different than heart disorders and abdomen disorders. They're the same. They should be treated the same. The HIPAA protection should be the same. And we sort of pointed that out. Now, in terms of the exposure and the courage to step forward with this stuff, that really fell to the first group, right? Because we really didn't know the full impact of that. And during that first group, I was nervous. I, I kept checking in, going, are you okay? Are you okay? Do the cameras bother you? Do you, need, do you want to go to the hospital? Are you all right? Do you, is this going to work for you? I, I was just very upset and nervous all the time. And it's interesting. Uh, finally, Mary Carey, about, you know, like after 10 days of me with saying that over and over, Mary Carey, the porn star, leans into me and goes, uh, Drew, I've done just about everything on a camera. This is easy. This is not a problem. And I thought, no. I thought, yeah, yeah, they know what this means. They get what they're doing. They're, they've consented to this, and they understand what they've consented to. Now, what did happen that we did not anticipate was that most of them came in to get paid, to be on TV, to sort of resurrect themselves, to have a sort of a you know resurrection-style uh, story, and also to screw with us. They, they didn't understand that we were going to take things seriously. And in every group, there was a really interesting thing that happened. They came in with their sort of resistance and their desire to mess, you know, to mess with us. They saw, you know, we called them by their real names, not their television names or their porn star names. And we, you know, Mary Harry was Mary Ellen to me, you know, and, and we the, the we cut through all the BS and took very seriously the treatment. And they all recognized that, participated in that, and they went from sort of resistant and wanting to mess with things to appreciating the treatment. And then this was the extraordinary thing. Every single one of them had this experience, wanting to be an, an example for other people because they valued what was happening and they wanted to share it with other people. That that was something that was astonishing to me and I was so grateful for and it happened in every group. Uh, so they all went from whatever motivated them to come in to benefiting from treatment and then wanting to be a good example for other people and to share it with other people. Were you, I've got a really, I, this should just literally popped in my mind. Were you nervous? Because obviously a lot of these people obviously have addiction problems. Yeah. But to go on a show, they're handing out money for people being on the show. So are yeah. you nervous that this is going to backfire? And it's like, now I just came into a bunch of money. What am I going to do with my money? I, I worried about that, but I, I did worry about that. But, but the money, we, there's a whole discipline at Harvard giving drug addicts money to keep them in treatment. So we have proven that that kind of positive reinforcement not just keeps people in treatment, keeps them engaged in treatment going forward. So I knew that would work. I so they 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 whose phone is that? No, that's Susan's. So I I knew it would be something where they they wanted to be on TV, so they weren't going to leave, and they wanted to get paid. So I made the I urged the producers to make the payment contingent on completing treatment. Uh, so. It, it worked. It worked. Usually people leave treatment, they bail out, they don't complete. They, you know, the, to have 100% of people, I mean, Daniel Ball would be the only exception, complete treatment. That was extraordinary. That was another piece that, uh, and by the way, Dan, you know, a lot of these people, after I treated them, and some we treated for a year or so afterwards, even more sometimes, once we concluded that, a lot of them became friends. Uh, I'm no longer the doctor to anybody, but uh, Dan Ball, when it's like, Daniel Ball is a great example. He's a wonderfully recovering guy now. 
That's new person. I could also see be one of the hardest shows to produce as far as even casting, because like who? I mean, so so you keep asking about the casting, and and indeed, you know, it's people whose agents and managers and things are are desperate. They've been trying to get this person help for a while, and now they have a leverage. Like, hey, you won't go to you know you won't go to Cirque Lodge, but I'll put you on TV and you'll get paid. Come on, let's go do this. And you'd be surprised. A lot of people then become willing. Is the other? I, I feel like the other hard part about this show is, again, these are people that have mental issues and mm-hmm. and addictions, mm-hmm. and you have lost patience after. It's the a show. fatal illness. The opiate. And, I think people now finally understand that the overprescribing of opiates created Jeff Conway. And every time I treated, for instance, Jeff, there were others, but Jeff Conway was sort of the poster child for this. I would treat him. We'd work with him. We worked with him for months afterwards. His pain team would literally say, why do you listen to those people that are trying to brainwash you? You're going to need these medicines forever. And they put him on so much medicine at one point that he had to be in a nursing home for it to be safely administered. I mean, it was terrible what they were doing to him. And they eventually killed him. And two weeks before he died, he called me and he said, I see what's happening now. I'm ready to do this. I said, Jeff, let's go. I'm ready anytime. Just call me. We'll put you in. And uh, two weeks later, that was that. And it was, again benzodiazepine opiates as prescribed by my peers. And that was killing my patients by the thousands at the time. Just unbelievable. And I think people get that now, that that's what was going on. Which person have you had on the show that made the most radical change for the better? Like the one they're like, man, this was, yeah. it might not be solely you, but it just really did a major turnaround that you still kind of keep in touch with or maybe seem through TV yeah. and media. And like, well, there were a bunch of them. There, there were, I mean, Daniel Ball was a great example. I mean, he is like a new person. But the, the one that really, really uh, created a new arc for her life was uh, Jennifer Ketchum, Penny Flame, the porn star. Sure. She went from alcohol, cocaine addict, porn star to now married with a child uh, and a medical social worker. I mean, a really high quality professional. I mean, then she went up to Washington. She went She went back to school, got a graduate degree. I mean, amazing, amazing. Wrote a couple books. She's phenomenal. Hey, Drew, what, what's your opinion on the the whole Britney Spears situation? Uh, I yeah, so, so, so here's the deal. About a lot of celebs over the years. When Michael yeah. Jackson died, we were on the phone. When, you know, with Britney, this documentary comes out. She says she's fine. I'm watching the videos and I kind of beg to differ, but I want to know what your thoughts are. She is not fine. She was seriously enough psychiatrically ill when she had her psychotic break to require 14 days of locked unit, okay? She was in a locked facility for 14 days. That status is reserved for the most seriously ill psychiatric patients, period. So we know that she had very severe psychiatric illness. This is not something that can be parsed. This is not arguable. 14 days, hold. They literally, after day three, they bring a judge in to assess the doctor's opinion to make sure that this person's civil liberty should continue to be restricted, they have to be really sick. So we know that. Then she had an excellent psychiatric team who got her stabilized. I mean, she was she would be on the streets or dying right now. No, no, forget it. She would not have made it this far. So that, that's what happens to cases like that. They go to the streets and they die. So she's alive. She became productive. She's has a life and she's a mom and she does all these things. The conservatorship that the father took on was extraordinary. Let me tell you why. Uh, 
first of all, the psychiatrist to ask for it was already uh, an outlying thing. But psychiatrists sort of give up at a certain point. They don't tell the family to get, they may bring it up, but families rarely do it. <clears throat> they always take the position that, oh, they'll be upset with me. They won't like it. They'll be unhappy. Our relationship will get ruined. It's a life-saving move. She's alive today because that psychiatrist set it up with the dad. Now, she's been stable long enough, and I, I would dare say, very, you know, maybe too long, for her to have a try off conservatorship. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. If she wants to try it, they could, should set up a way for her to do that. Now, the dad seems willing to do it. He just wants to transfer it over to somebody else. It's he, His and that, and that psychiatric team seem to really understand what they're dealing with. They understand how dangerous this is, and they're doing it carefully and systematically. Hats off to them. It, uh, most, of the, most of the family members whom I have suggested that to have a dead child because they refuse to do it. So I am telling you, this was a very good thing. Perhaps it went on too long. Perhaps he, she deserves a chance off. And then we'll see what happens. And do you think her mental illness was something that was she was born with and it was just going to be a matter of time before uh, it you know, came out? Or is something that could have been thing, yeah. induced by the public or whatever well i mean you're you're you know it, first of all there's not a separate diagnostic manual for celebrities i mean how many years have i been telling you that it's not like oh the britney spears diagnostic manual or or for child stars there's just the diagnostic manual how people get to their psychiatric diagnosis always involves a gene environment interaction right i mean sometimes it's more genes sometimes it's more environment is always very hard to tell Bipolar, I don't know her family heritage. And I heard there were some substances involved too, and I don't know if that was just part of her bipolar or if she actually had addiction. It doesn't seem like she had addiction because she never really, I don't see any evidence of treatment for addiction and recovery and that kind of stuff. And yet she's doing quite well, right? So that suggests it was more about her psychiatric illness. And the, a bipolar that you know comes on, it's often genetic. Maybe there are some substances that help trigger it. Being raised as a child star, talk to our friend Danny Bonaducci about how problematic that is. And, you know, these things all, you know, fit into what creates the syndrome we see in the present. Generally speaking, when it comes to psychiatric illnesses, about 50 to 60 percent of the illness, the way we say this, like say with alcoholism and addiction, 60 percent of it is, is determined on the basis of genetics alone. So about 50, 60 percent genetic, 40, 50 percent environment and Thus, you get serious mental illness. What are your What are your thoughts on Doctor Phil? Like after you've seen his show, what are your feelings? He on? does He does excellent TV show. He does an amazing TV show. He's He's almost a genius at that. What I don't like is that he, and this is not his fault. This is the audience's fault, frankly. Is that he has created, and I and I deal with this on the teen mom side of thing all the time, which is this notion that the way you deal with serious mental illnesses. You just confront them. Don't you know that that heroin is destroying your family? It's like, yeah, they know. They would love to stop. They can't. That's why it's an illness. So I, this idea, you know, there, we some of the women in Team Mom have had, had very serious uh, psychiatric issues and have teams of people on their side working on them. God bless them. And then what I get is, why did you confront her? Can't you see that fill in the blank? Like, that, that would make her worse. That would really make her a destabilized and would not serve anything in terms of the show or her well-being. So people have this con concept that you can somehow, <laughs> I don't know what it is, like confront or hold accountable. I mean, think, you know, serious mental illness takes 
years to treat. There's a reason it takes years to treat. You, you come on hard and strong and all you get is force fields and instability of people feel humiliated or ashamed. Is there one of the teen moms that you're most proud of? I guess how she's grown up or developed? I think, you know, uh, you know, they're all um, extraordinary, the, the ones that we still uh, are, are involved with. But uh, Caitlin, you know, uh, Caitlin and Tyler. Caitlin had, you know, was treated several times for pretty serious psychopathology, and she is amazing now. Uh, so good for her. I always remember watching their storyline, and I just were like, these two are like so far above and beyond like their mental, like their age. I just always yeah. thought they were mentally so much yeah. further along than everyone else. It's so funny when I when I was asked to do the show. So back to public health messaging and coronavirus. Here's how we know how to make people change with public health messaging. You create a narrative arc. You create a narrative about someone who's like the person you're trying to reach or is relatable to the person you're trying to reach. And you show the consequences of their choices. You throw in some humor and drama and maybe some music. That's how you change behavior. So when I when they came to this idea that we're going to show what happens when people get pregnant in their teens, I thought, oh, this is going to affect teen pregnancy. There's no doubt. There's no doubt in my mind this will have a significant impact on young people. And so I was watching the first season and flying out here to New York um, on the plane and the, their narrative came up in that first season. I was like, oh my God. I told the producers, I, I said, I have to meet with them before I go out there. I have to please bring them to my dressing room. And they did it. It's so funny. You know, they're 17 years old and they tell the story now that they thought they were in trouble and I was going to scold <laughs> them or something. And I came in, I said, you guys are, do you understand how extraordinary your, your, your story and how much you've shared here? And they were like, huh, I guess <laughs> just our life. You know, it's really, we, we laugh about it now. It's kind of funny. What are your thoughts on Farrah Abraham? You know, obviously she did Teen Mom, then made a sex tape, and now you see her with her daughter still. She seems like she's a good mother, but, you know, we've we seen what she's done with the media and to enhance her, her career. Farrah, look, when people uh, have a make their living on television uh, and through media and they lose that job, I think to expect them to suddenly withdraw from those sources of income is unrealistic. They're going to keep trying to find ways to use that to continue to make a living. They, they're they now kind of, I wouldn't say indoctrinated, but they're good at it. They, and they have a public persona that might be something that they can turn into something. So it makes perfect sense to me that she would continue to do that. That's different different than how do I feel about Farrah, right? Yeah. Uh, Farrah is not an easy person. Uh, I have only affection for her. I told her when she left that I would miss her and I do. Uh, but that doesn't, you know, she's got some personality stuff that makes her very, very challenging to work with. I mean, I don't know if you saw some of the interactions I had with her on TV. They were extraordinary. Are you so nervous what she's doing to like the relationship she's going to have with her daughter? Because I don't know if she sat her, I, her daughter down over some of the decisions she's chosen, but I don't know what's happening there. I'm not involved with her anymore. What What is it you're seeing? I mean, obviously the sex tape, you see what she's done, you know, kind of enhancing her looks uh, over the years from her butt to her, everything like that. But obviously so, so she's gone that way. And, and that is what caused her to lose her job on MTV, as far as I can tell. And so has she continued to go down that path? Is that what happened? Not that I know of lately, but I mean, I don't know how what her main source of income is, maybe besides doing... I think she, maybe she fools around doing some sort of webcam stuff. But. I will tell you one thing that the producers always said about Farah. 
as, as challenging and difficult as she was, she was all about work. She was all about getting, getting things done and doing, you know, she would remember she would start multiple businesses and do She was very, very, uh, I don't want to say entrepreneurial so much as diligent. She's very diligent and, and you know, willing to work. She work and work hard. Uh, and that's, that's an asset for her. She, she's a crazy hard worker. And I'll tell you, she was one of our, like, we've obviously had tons and tons of guests on this podcast, but she was like on time. Yeah. She was prompt. She, that's I, fair. It was insane. I was like, yeah. I, I was expecting something else to be honest with no, you. That, that's not, no, that's not, no, no, no. I, I maybe she's for, for lack of a better way of describing it. She's professional. Yep. Right. Very and and she can make it impossible for you when you're interviewing her. But she would not be unprofessional in terms of not being ready and not showing up and that kind of thing. All right. So, Dr. I got a question for you. All Do right. you think fame is a drug? Do you feel that people can get addicted to fame? Oh, absolutely. And there's no doubt about it. Uh, but but it's kind of it's shifting and changing right now. It's very interesting. So, you know, I wrote that book, The Mirror Effect, about fame, essentially, and about narcissism and about people that pursue fame. We, we were able to show with our models that fame is an attempt to heal injuries from childhood, narcissistic injuries. That's what that's what our theory was. That's what our research showed. And we had the only public research on this. So, you know, we felt pretty strong about our position on that. We also were reporting that fame as an autonomous motivator showed up internationally during the like 80s and 90s. It was before that, when you asked young people, what do they want to do with their life? They would say, I want to have a family. I want to have a profession. I want a career. I want a house, whatever, you know, sort of normal, for lack of a better word, sorts of pursuits. And then in the 80s and 90s, internationally, you start seeing fame as a separate motivator that I want to be famous. Now, with the democratization of the Internet, the digital access, that I, I think we saw that peak. And now I think people understand the emptiness of all that. So you're seeing people less. Um, it just feels like they're doing it less for fame's sake more these days. More There's a lot more about um, it feels like it's more entrepreneurial in terms of trying to create businesses and things like that. But here's the really interesting thing that I have seen this narcissistic turn. I mean, I saw it literally on the diagnostic sheets at the psychiatric hospital I was working. We All of a sudden, everything became a narcissistic disorders. <clears throat> well, I think we're seeing another shift now. I think for the last maybe three years, we have subtly and without notice been shifting from narcissism to histrionic disorders or histrionic traits. And histrionic is a relative of narcissism, but it's marked by excessive emotionality and, you know, being swept up into mobs and to be, you know, overly um, uh, critical and, just, you know, hysterical, literally we get caught into hysterias. And we have clearly moved that way. And I was listening to some, some uh, lectures on this the other day, and there was uh, a notion, and I'm going to have to dig into this research a little more, a notion that excessive praise and reward may won't be one of the under, underlying causes or contributing causes to histrionic disorders. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound interesting? Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> fame right there for you. Everyone yeah. getting praised for getting rewards for everything. <laughs> but we are we are certainly histrionic now, man. It, it is uncanny the, the hysterics that we're all in at all times. Yeah. You recently did the Masked Singer. How was that experience for you? Best produced show I've ever seen. What, what really? a night! What a nightmare for those guys. I mean, I want you to think about it. You have 
all these celebrities, everybody's on a non-disclosure agreement. It's all secretive. You're building massive costumes around everybody. You know, you have to find music, clear music, coach the music up, choreograph and teach the choreography, get them in there, do the song. And, and you know, but there's like 12 or 14 cameras going. It's one of the most extraordinary productions I've ever, ever seen. And they have fun. It really is. You'll notice everyone talks about how fun it is. It really is a lot of fun. How do they keep it secret behind the scenes? Because, like, do they have the the judges on, like, one side of the, the building and the contestants on the other? Like, I one, just got so so the, the, the contestants have their own sort of little trailer aisle that is completely walled off with tents and uh, curtains. You you are when you walk out of your house in the morning, somebody comes to pick you up. That somebody doesn't really even know who he's picking up. You must be covered so none of your skin can be exposed. You cannot. You're not allowed. You're not allowed. You're not allowed to speak until you walk in your trailer and your producing team comes in and shuts the door. And any other speaking is completely forbidden. And so you can't tell what race the person is. You can't tell what sex the person is. You can't tell anything. And people take it very seriously. I So I, I had a thing, you know, where we had, uh, had my wife sign. You have, you have to sign non-disclosures, and they're very intense. And uh, I had a vocal. I turned out I had a vocal injury. I was aware that some of my voice was screwed up. And so I had to have a vocal rehab coach show up. And my son, who was living with at the time, started asking questions like, what's going on here? I said, oh, you know, I'm going to sing the national anthem at Dodger Stadium. Just no big deal. It's just warming up. And then she started showing up like three days a week. And he's like, but why, why are you doing this? I went, sign the paper. Here we go. We'll tell you about it. Just sign the paper. And so, and uh, people take it very seriously. That's so crazy, though. Like to, to go the costume? And, and by the way, what's that? Adam? Do you get to do you get to pick the costume at all? The, everything you... about everything is a process. Uh, the the first costume conversation, they call you and they go, they go, what, what were you thinking of? Because here's what we're thinking of. And with me, strangely, we both were thinking eagle. It's very weird. Um, and I didn't expect rock eagle. That screwed me up a little bit because in terms of song choices and stuff. Um, but yeah, then then they start building the costume and you go to a little warehouse in Glendale and they build it all around you and. You make multiple visits there. And, you know, people keep asking, is it, um, are you really performing? You get, you have a choreography rehearsal for like an hour on Saturday. You come back on Tuesday, you have a dress rehearsal, and then you sing. And that's it. And if I had not gotten kicked off early, I was thinking, God, I don't know how much longer I can do this. It's so intense. Now, when you do the dress rehearsals or you're going to pick out your costume, is it the same thing? Like you got to be covered from head to toe when you leave uh, your house? You go do that no. Stuff. Yeah, the dress rehearsal, yes. And which is very awkward. When you do the dress rehearsal, well, when you do the choreography, you have the head on, but you're not allowed to speak to the dancers. So it's kind of awkward. You know, the choreographer's there and, you, and the dancers are doing their thing and you've got you've to communicate, you know, with hand gestures. You're not allowed to speak. They, it was so funny. Um, the dancers enjoyed working with me and they started guessing who I was. This is my favorite guest. They thought, they thought I was Barack Obama. I thought that was, <laughs> yeah. that was fantastic. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was the best guess of all. And, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, so, and then the dress rehearsal, you're in full costume. You're so already, you know, you, you don't speak until the music starts and then you're singing. 
That's great. That's so crazy. David yeah. Spade had a great joke on Stern when he's like, I love that show. They're always like, is it Barbara Streisand? <laughs> <I know. laughs> is it Elton John? Oh, no, it's Mark McGrath. Yeah. But what's weird is sometimes it is somebody extraordinary. But the reason I got kicked off is I was up against Patti LaBelle. You know what I mean? I mean it's like, I, of course, Patty LaBelle wins. Of course. So. Well, you're an opera singer. Yeah, yeah, but I, I, they wouldn't let me sing that stuff because it was a rock eagle. Like it's the character. It's the character. Come on, oh. you know. And, and that I had this vocal injury at the time. I was trying to work around and through and stuff. It was, it was. I would have, I, I would have done song choice very differently. I had uh, in retrospect, and that would have made a difference for me. I would, I would have lasted longer. Who is a celebrity that you run into the most in L.A.? Tom Arnold's a friend. I have lots of friends that are celebrities. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard. Corolla. I mean, uh, Corolla talks to me every day. All right. Well, then, who's the biggest name you have in your phone? Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, that's a good one. Pretty good. It's a good one. Yeah. What What's your thoughts on Caitlyn running for? uh, I think it's fantastic. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. I, I think first of all, people are so disgusted with what's going on in California that. This is very reminds me of the Gray Davis doc too. They get disgusted, like put somebody in there. Come on, and Caitlin is unassailable on many fronts, and I want to hear what her policies are going to be. I'm very interested. I, I, look, this is an extraordinarily accomplished person, a Olympic champion, and an interesting life course. Smart person, probably has some interesting ideas. Let's hear them. I want to hear. Them. So I, I, I love the whole idea of it. As someone who knows the, the, you know, the the addiction to fame, how do we make sure this is she's going at it for the right reasons, is not chasing fame? You don't live in California, do you, Adam? That Dax, help him understand how disgusted everybody is in California. <laughs> Arnold as the governor, man, people people yeah. go for names out here. It's well, crazy. especially in this recall effort, because the recall is: Do you want to recall the governor? Yes or no? And then if if yes. Who do you want to be governor? And there's a list of 100 people. And if you don't know the names, it's going to be hard to choose. True. Yeah. But hasn't she always been like Republican? I think that I think would be hard is. to win in yeah. California. I think it would be hard to win. I think I think independent would probably do better. People are trying to get me to run for governor. And my my last, you know, S storm around trying to help homelessness proved to me that it's like, I'm not sure it's worth it to try to help that state. That people are just awful. Really awful, dude. Why were they? I saw that. That was it happened a few days ago. You're in the news because you know, obviously, you've been outspoken about the issue with homelessness and the, the problems with it in LA. But why? I feel like people see you, and obviously, you're successful, but they make you, and, and it's not just you, a lot of people because they see you're just an easy target for them. They just they, like, they turn you into a cartoon character, they turn you into a cartoon, and, and they are the, the newspaper print will print anything anybody says, anything. Without checking, I, I ended up calling the reporter going, why didn't you ask me my professional credentials? An anti-immigrant? That's disgusting. Where did you get that? My grandfather immigrated to this country to get away from the Ukrainian genocide. I'm an immigrant. How disgusting of you. And they're like, oh, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't, we tried. You did not try. You did not try. You didn't say, what are your professional credentials? Let me hear them. I'm happy to share them with you. Oh my God! These people. The, did, the they, print, did they? I, I told my son. What's that? Did they retract it? No, they didn't retract or update or anything. I told my son if when he he's going to take the bar in July, so he passed the bar. I'm going to put him to work full time suing people. I, I've had it. I have just had it with the slander and libel that people get away with with zero consequence. It has to stop. It must stop. Some of us have got to push back. 
So when you start doing interviews now with media outlets, let's say, for example, not like you'll go back to them is the LA Times. You know, yeah. I know if you had beef with them with the LA Times. Are you Always. now when you do print? Are I don't do print. I, I will not do print. I will not do print because they are irresponsible, reprehensible, libelous. They, they will never, and I mean, I've never had a print story that reflected my reality. That's how, you know, it's how, you know, it's funny. My, my son was managing my Twitter during one of the shit storms recently, and he watched the fake news develop and it infuriated him. And you can see fake news laundering. I love this word, laundering through the system. And then legitimate, so-called legitimate press reports it as fact. It's reprehensible what's going on here. And there's got to be some pushback. Somebody has to, people are getting hurt. People are losing their careers. People are being destabilized from their mental health perspective. It's time to stand up to this. It, it is. And I, I think you're going to see more of that soon. I mean, it's I, go ahead. Cancel culture. I mean, people yeah. are so quick to yeah. just cancel someone off of their law, you know, with the career that they've built over the last 30 years or whatever. They, they don't care about their livelihood, their family, the people they're responsible for. And most of the time, the cancel is built off the laundered story, not the actual facts. So it's actually a reaction to an unreality. And so print is the most disgusting media out there, at least in television or podcast or radio. You have some control over the content because you're presenting it. But of course, it can be misrepresented still. Yeah. No, yeah. No, sure. I get it. We, uh, you know, it's disgusting. That's the word that has come to mind for me lately. It is truly disgusting what they're doing. And people should be should be. Uh, they should let their businesses fail, these print meat outlets and things that, that are, are so disgusting. Respond to them like you would any other, anything else that is disgusting in your life. Pull away. Be careful. Well, I want to shift gears because I, I want to do something a little lighter than this because I can see you, the, the print topic uh, you were pretty fired up about. But I want to get – we've been doing something fun, Dr. Drew, where we've been having fan question roulette. All right? So all right. Uh, the fans of the podcast have no idea who's – which celebrities coming on the podcast this all right. week? I get they it. Submit questions. We plan. <laughs> we haven't even heard them. All right. All right. We're going with Nick. Hey, Dax and Adam. I'm a huge fan of the show. My question for the guest is: What is the naughtiest thing you ever did in school? Me? That's me. The naughtiest thing I ever yeah, did. That's for you. It's funny. I was just talking about it the other day. I I tried to steal when I was 11 a little. <laughs> um like pressed cardboard is about this big little sort of lid that I needed. And this shop teacher wouldn't let any of us get near it. And he caught me and he dragged me into, this was the most horrifying experience of my life too. Only and I'm 11 and dragged me to the principal's office and insisted that I was a burgeoning criminal. And, and they had to really call them. And he was not kidding. It was not like it was a, a display for, cause I remember the principal going, um, let's kind of see how this works out. <laughs> let's see, let's see where this goes. I'm not sure that's the right approach. And that principal ended up becoming one of my patients 20 years later and was a, a, a saint or a great guy. Very cool. So I, I've got a good story for you guys on Virgin Criminals. When I was in like fourth grade, my buddy Nick and I, we were taking like math class. They were teaching us how to like write checks and stuff at that point. <laughs> and we had a carnival coming up for the school <laughs> to raise money. Oh, perfect. So, we forged one of these, like, check. I think we literally whited out where it says void. <laughs> we wrote the check for $100, gave 
gave it to them. They piled us up with all these tickets and coupons. Oh, it's perfect. And we went and we played the carnival like crazy, had so much fun. And then like mid carnival, I think one of us like kind of had the guilt on our, our chest. And we told one of our parents, our parents made us go back to the person that had sold us the tickets and confess. And <laughs> they like blamed us how we were just these horrible children. I'm like, you fell for a, a fake check. <laughs> I so pretty good about it. It's like a fourth grader. <laughs> but you, you, you win. My, 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 my larceny was about a twenty-five cents, maybe a nickel. Here's uh, a hundred bucks. Pretty good. Nine. <laughs> we were. We couldn't believe they took it. We we're like, oh my god, that actually worked. And then we thought, for the rest of life, we could just get away with stolen checks. On to a All career right. hey, we got in another entertainment question. news. All right, one more question for yeah. you. This one's uh, from Reagan. Hi, Dax and Adam. My question to you is, what is one piece of advice that someone else has given to you that has really stuck with you throughout your life? Oh, my gosh. So many th important things. I mean, it's, that's all medical training is, is learning from the people ahead of you. Uh, I don't know, let me think. On it. What, what do you guys have anything? Oh, mine's easy. Mine's from um, my friend Kimmy, Kimmy Kardashian. She said, fake it till you make it. <laughs> I don't have stuff like that. Um, I know. Mine was going to say, mine's so terrible. Mine was Kid Rock, and the hardest thing in Hollywood is being famous with no money. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting. Uh, I, I, but that's no, like, personal life advice. Uh, Gosh. I don't have any serious ones. Yeah, I, I, it's so funny. I mean, I've had so much advice from so many people. It's funny. That, you know, I think some of this may actually be COVID brain. So I have these, I have, since COVID, you know, I was sick for three months with COVID. And, and I had long hauler syndrome and I was foggy and all this stuff. And what I'm left with is occasionally I'll be speaking. And all of a sudden, my mind will stop. It'll just block. And I feel like something's happening like that right now in terms of this question. Uh, gosh. There's something in your gut that you just kind of realized to yourself that you stuck with you over the years. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, finding, I'm finding myself thinking about... Um, I don't know that it's advice, but it's about being on a team that uh, that I've discovered about myself that, you know, I was very independent practicing medicine by myself, but I love working with a team uh, with psychiatric patients. And so I, I would I guess the I don't know if anybody ever told me this or or what. Oh, God, I had so many good advices over the years. Uh, any, any event, uh, just uh, be, be, if you're somebody that enjoys working in teams, really pay attention to that because it, it is a very different kind of experience. If you're good in teams and work in teams, it can, you can do a lot more as, as a team member. But I, I remember I used to spend a lot of time talking to this old psychiatrist. Uh, he was like 75 years old and I was like 27. And he was an old timer. And... Uh, I, I wish I wish I know he just filled my head with lots of good advice. I can't remember anything right now. But anyway, that's it. <laughs> it's all, it's right. all good. It's all uh, good. My last question for you, Dr. Drew, is what was the coolest dinner you've ever had in L.A.? Like where you sat at the table and you're looking around the room like, man, like this is fucking pretty cool. Like this is just like just really cool people. I can't believe I'm sitting with these people right now. Who was at that table with you? You know, the first time that happened to me, I, I would again, I'm just what jumps in my head because I've had I've had been very fortunate to have a bunch of cool dinners. Um, usually 
they were oh my gosh i've had so many uh <laughs> they were after like a uh you know a premiere or something or the up you know the, those things where they sometimes i've hosted these things where the stars and the director talk about the movie that you're watching and stuff and they do it for for industry people those are always amazing but the first time that happened to me it was when it was when i was it was christmas a christmas gathering of the radio air staff uh and it, and it was the k-rock radio air staff circa 1983 or maybe 84. Ooh, that's a good and, staff yeah and those i was a listener before i was a part of the whole situation there and i was just so struck that i was sitting with these creative people and the people are making having such an impact on at least los angeles at the time so that was the first time i experienced that so I know you've got like a hundred jobs right now. I, I, I really don't right now. Yes, things are kind you of, do. You're always like recording something, podcasting. Yeah. But I mean, it, it, you look, it, I realized I was, you know, Shelly from celebrity rehab glasses and the blonde yeah, yeah. hair. Mm -hmm. She and I were talking the other day, like about a week ago. And, and, and we, we just realized that, you know, clinical work is so hard, particularly addicts. And that, that once you've done that 12 hours a day, nothing else feels like work. It just doesn't feel like work. I don't feel like I'm working here with you. I feel like I'm having a conversation with you. And uh, and after this, we're going to film a streaming show. And that feels like fun and interesting and engagement. It does not feel like work. It just doesn't. That's so, awesome. So I mean, tell, that's... you know, for people that haven't tuned in to Dr. Drew After Dark or your, your streaming show, like, okay. what, what can people expect? Okay. So I do several very, very different kinds of shows, right? And they're all at my website, drdrew.com. So I do three days a week, a podcast with Adam Carolla. And it's, that is uh, a lot. If you like Adam, you will like that show because a lot of it is me going, yes, Adam. Uh-huh. Yep. Not only that, Adam. Yep, Adam. Yes, Adam. Uh-huh. And not only that, Adam, but did you think about this? And, uh, and every week we do an analysis of the love boat. You'll have to listen to it and understand why we do that. Um, and then I do my own podcast, the Dr. Drew podcast with, um, pretty serious intellectuals and scientists and things. And I've been extremely happy with the guests we've had lately. This, the last three or four that are up and the next four that are coming are just extraordinary interviews. I, I recommend it highly if you're, if you're interested in learning something. The streaming shows are, are much more, uh, you know, it's obviously live and day and date and uh, we interact. I, I either take phone calls off Clubhouse while I'm streaming. So we do Clubhouse phone interaction or I look at a restream from Facebook, YouTube, Twitch, uh, 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 Twitter, and uh, kind of take questions and interact with people. It's been a lot about COVID. I mean, I'm just trying, you know, a lot of it is what's on people's minds and COVID is what's on people's mind. And we try to make sense of things, try to calm everybody down, make sense of things. And then After Dark is the outlier. <laughs> After Dark is the new love line from my, my position. It, it is, um, it's me and Christina P, Tom Segura's wife, trying to struggle with the stuff that's out there on TikTok and YouTube, TikTok and YouTube, and people call in with voice messages and emails. And I've been doing a number of shows without Christina just by myself, which is really very Loveline-esque. It's just me answering questions. And the kinds of questions are sort of Loveline-esque type questions. And, and that show, um, there's something very, very, very special about that show. Um, it's funny, it's interesting. Uh, and there's some important information. So that, that's Loveline, right? It was funny, interesting, different, interactive, and important information hidden hidden in it. That's, so that's cool. great. Well, listen, I mean, you people, can follow. 
I guess I can say people love the love line stuff. Yeah, they love love well, they love they love your mom's house, which is the platform where that show is. That's Tom Segura and his wife, your mom's yeah. house. And, and Birch Kreischer is very involved with it. They have two bears, one cave, and Birch Kreischer's wife is involved. It's a whole family there that we're all involved with. And it's interesting when when I take some of the questions I've gotten off Clubhouse are, are questions about that little family like they're how did you guys get together i'm so intrigued by the relationships amongst the four of you meaning me tom my wife and, and christina p and it, it is kind of a real-time uh not soap opera but an office like 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 an you know a reality office show yeah right well listen dr drew i uh, i miss running into you on the streets of new york city he's a he's a he's a pro at uh ambush paparazzi like i do he just knows how to handle it. So if you want to find Adam, he's outside the London Hotel. <laughs> and if he's not outside the London, he's in his office across the street. So, yeah. So. yeah, pretty much. I'm running around. So Look, it's, it's so great to find, you know, a face you recognize and trust behind that camera, right? Let me, let me give you stroke you guys a little bit oh, for a second. Yeah. Because you, when, you know, what you see on TMZ and out there and stuff are guys like Adam running around with a little video camera. And it is what they do is an art form and it's exceedingly difficult. And from on the other side of the camera, it's dangerous. And to have somebody you trust on the other side, asking difficult questions, you guys, cause you have to, that's your job and funny questions. That's your job. But to be able to trust that person makes you stop and go, all right, let's talk. Let's see what we got. I appreciate that, but you always handle a class and always give a great answer and uh, on the other side for us, it's always refreshing dealing with someone who's just cool about it. It makes our job easier. And I'm always fortunate because you give us two minutes of your time, I'm able to pay for my health insurance. So uh, it's, that, uh, that, I, I think it's so it's uh, it's sort of weird to, to me to hide from you guys. I, I understand the treachery because some of the camera holders may not they may ask really crazy questions and then you're caught going, I don't know. And that doesn't look good. But but. I understand you're doing a job. It's an industry and it's, you know, why, why do you get offended by that? You should be, you know, sort of help them out. What's the big deal? I agree. I, well, again, I always try to thank the person off camera, say, Hey, listen, thank you. And literally, literally say the same exact words. Thank you for your time because of that. I'm able to pay my bills. I believe and that. I, don't, I believe I don't that's good for you, but because you're doing that, you give me some of your time. Yeah. I'm able to be employed. And, and, so and, and to be fair, I mean, if you don't, if you don't want to have a public life, don't have a public life. That's fine. Yeah. But, but yeah. part of being in the public is all this Michigan. And, and I must tell you the, you know, you asked earlier about all the print media and nonsense and crap storms I get involved with. I'm kind of getting used to it. I got, I used to have very thin skin. I remember when Amazon first started putting, commentary about books on the on the Amazon site and when people would say these horrible things about something I've written I'd be extremely upset and incensed and how how dare they now it's like oh my god it's just I just get used to horrible horrible things being said and it, it really like I said it's the time to push back it's also time to keep your head up high and keep doing good and then leave it at that Hey, if you don't have haters, you're not being successful. Well it's funny you would say that my publicist about two years ago she goes you know in the post-Trump era, if you're not in the middle of a crap storm, you don't exist. <laughs> I was like, boy, she is right. She is really right. But it's not fun. I, I must tell you, it's, it's it, and some people, I could see where people would be injured, literally injured by some of the things people say. For sure. Yeah. Well, 
Thank you, Dr. Drew. We appreciate your time. Always a privilege. Insights, so thank you. I'm going to so walk much. over to the London right now, see if I can find Adam. So, <laughs> so. You'll see me there pretty soon. I'm not going to lie. That's <laughs> good. One of the nicest dudes, man. I I'm telling you, I've seen him over the years. I mean, you have a very close relationship with him. For me, I've only seen him in New York. And, you know, we ran into him in L.A. We came on his show. But, like, uh, you know, I've always seen him on the streets. And it's just always so cool, so nice. And I feel in some ways sometimes bad for him because – He's an easy target. People always like to give him shit because, like, he talked about. But I'm like, he's fucking great. Like him, Dr. Oz, are some of the nicest people I deal with. They just, they're cool guys. Yeah. And they I, come from a good place. They're there to help. I, I think the most interesting part of our conversation with Dr. Drew was talking about Britney Spears. I don't know. Yeah. Personally, I find that stuff so fascinating, talking about Britney Spears, talking about just the behind the scenes uh, of, like, Celeb Rehab, the TV show, behind the scenes of The Masked Singer. I don't know. I just feel like he's done a little bit of it all. He's a really smart dude, and his perspectives, I, I, I think, are fascinating. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he talked about celebrity rehab and how the producers try to say, okay, they try to make it into a reality show, and him, he's like, listen, my credibility's on the line. My, my people's are lives are on the line. Not even his credibility. People's lives are on the line, and you're sitting there baiting them into getting in fights with other people. It's pretty wild, man. But uh, good guy. Glad to have him on. Uh, you can find him at uh, – uh, make sure you follow him. It's uh, at Drew, Dr. Drew Pinsky. He's a fun follow. Make sure you follow the Hollywood Podcast. We have this whole podcast on our YouTube page where you can see the whole entire interview. We're on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter. We're on all the social media apps. So make sure you follow the Hollywood Podcast. And make sure you leave a review. That's the best thing you do to support this podcast. You can find me at, at Adam Glynn. You can find Dax Holt at D-A-X-H-O-L-T. And we'll see you guys next time. Media Production.